Hello and welcome to the ALC Par African Radio's discussion program. The discussion program brings together experts to reflect on a variety of current security issues facing Africa at local, national and international levels. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. My guests today are four women and early career fellows at the African Leadership Center in Nairobi. They are Chimumi Fabiano from, from Malawi, Ikran Abdullahi from Kenya, Margaret Luwila from South Sudan, and Tabita Mwangi from Kenya. Uh, ladies, I mean, this has been a very tumultuous year for you with COVID-19. How have you been able to cope with your studies? I'll start with uh, Chimwemwe. Thank you, Desmond, for the question. Um, been tough, that's a fact. Um, having to leave, so I was in Nairobi at the time, having to leave abruptly, um, going through quarantine, adjusting to um, living in a, you know, living in a confined way, so social distancing, that's been difficult. On the other hand, um, I think it's come with, you know, a bit of silver lining for me. It meant I came back home early, I could be with my family and, you know, learn other ways of, of connecting with the rest of the world and my colleagues. Okay, yes. Uh, Ikran, well, you were you based in Nairobi anyway, so you didn't have to go anywhere. But did that affect uh, your studies? Thank you, Desmond. Um, I'd say... It affected my studies in some way because uh, learning was much better when we were at uh, the ALC and uh, we had mentors coming in and we had discussions as group. Uh, but again, also um, staying at home and doing um, uh, online discussions was also very helpful. And um, I'd say it also gave me more time with my family. And um, despite the COVID situation that hasn't been well, but... I'd say it gave me another um, another way of another mode like of learning. Yes, and you the, uh, the new way, yeah. Okay, yeah. And Margaret, what about you? Thank you for the question, and thank you for having us today. Um, it was definitely a shock for for me personally. Um, we are lucky enough that the African Leadership Center was able to adapt the program, so. We were doing um, some of the sessions online. However, we are, well, personally, personally, I was looking forward to going to New York in July. So it is a bit disappointing that we were not able to do that. It was great though that we were still able to continue with our sessions online. Okay, and, and you, Tabitha. Thank you, Desmond. Just like um, the other fellows have said, um, I miss the in-person sessions because of the human interaction that comes with that. So for instance, being able to spend more time with the mentors that walk in because we, it's very limited. If a session is supposed to end at a specific time, more often than not, there's no additional time. And yet there's a lot of conversations that we have over lunch hour and over tea when we're just hanging out at the center. So that has been missing. But like Maggie said, the fact that ALC was able to adapt really fast has meant that we've left the fellowship with an extra um, 
tool in our toolbox, which is being digital, digitally savvy. So now we are able to you know, communicate more easily with people elsewhere. And we've gotten the opportunity to attend webinars on different areas that are related to our work. So it's been, it's been a good experience, but I also was looking forward to going to Nigeria for field work and spending the summer in New York. But then there will always be a chance to do those things. So it's been, it's been a good experience regardless of the challenges. Yeah, 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 that's the point. I mean, you, you've not had the opportunity to have your practical uh, attachments. So, so how did that affect you personally at Chimwemwe? Where were you supposed to go? Um, at, thank you. Um, at the time, I did not know which institution I'd be placed with. Uh, mine was going to be an, a placement. So um, I was placed with the Center for Reproductive Rights. Um, they have an office well, they have regional offices. So one is in Nairobi, and I believe that's where I would have been placed. Um, the work ideally would have involved, um, you know, roving around the region. So that, and that meant also um, opportunities, for example, to sit in at some stations at the African Union. And so I've missed out on that aspect um, in terms of being able to interact with people and yeah. directly observe how work is done and how, um, engagements and deliberation, uh, deliberations are around policy work is done directly. Um, so having said that, however, it's, it's been good to, to work virtually with them. Um, you know, we've been able to work through, um, I've been able to gain some experience with them um, virtually, but I can see how um, um, you know, being there in person would have made um, a difference. But I went in into this placement, um, you know, keeping an open mind, knowing that, you know, the future is uncertain. This is pretty much the new way of working. It will have to become the new way of working. And what would remote work look like, especially with a team that you've never worked with before? And I've been able to experience that. And so I do appreciate that aspect. And Ikran, what about you? Where were you going to go? Um, so for me, I was supposed to go to Somalia and do my research and collect data from there. Uh, but again, also because of the COVID, so I had to uh, adapt to the new ways of collecting data and I had to do my interviews through Zoom and uh, some um, I'd collected uh, using uh, phone interviews. Um, although it was a bit challenging for um, uh, getting um, respondents, uh, because some will say there's internet connections and, you know, um, also um, some do not have like uh, understanding of uh, doing uh, phone interviews or um, Zoom interviews, but uh, all went well despite that. And yeah. yeah but, but, but you yourself, you've done a lot of work in Somalia in the past, so it should not have been a problem for you, should it? Yeah, it shouldn't have been a problem, but it's always better collecting data when you're in the field. You know, like um, getting respondents and, you know, um, getting one-on-one -on -one interviews with these people and um, uh, trying to ask more questions when, when you're with the person. Yes. But if people are not used to doing Zoom interviews and uh, sitting with them for like more than one and a half hours, somebody gets tired. And knowing that, you know, you're a student and you're just collecting this research for you to go um, and, and do your um, school report. And uh, some people would get tired, some would get bored, but it was much better if I could have gone. But again, I, I still managed to collect my information. Yes, uh, Margaret, where were you supposed to go? I was supposed to go to South Sudan. Um, 
just like Ekran, I was looking forward to in interacting with these women um, and getting more information within their lived realities. Um, I also had to collect data remotely, so that meant I was calling people or using WhatsApp. Um, however, what, what came out of that is that I realized um, a lot of voices were being excluded. So there were women at the grassroots that I was not able to reach, either due to um, phone connection issues or they just did not have access to internet. So for me, it was an opportunity to reflect on how we conduct research and perhaps even the future of research, especially if we have to do things online um, to ensure that we are not reinforcing inequalities um, that already exist in society. But, but, but couldn't you have gone to South Sudan? I don't think the borders were closed for such a long time, were they? The borders um, were not closed for too long. Yes. However, um, I think just for the sake of safety, we decided to do the research remotely. Oh, okay. Uh, Tabitha, of course, you were going to go to Nigeria, but now let's talk about the course. I mean, you're almost finished now. What are the benefits of, of, of this program for you personally, Tabitha? Um, for me, it's been very interesting because it's been an opportunity to combine both theory and practice. The fact that we've been having classes where we learn the theory and then get to interact with mentors that are already working has been very fulfilling. Um, it also helped change my mindset because initially when I joined, I was very hard power um, is the solution inclined. I always thought that, you know, in the tourism space, there's no use of force, there's no hard power, then surely we're losing. And I've learned over time that there's different ways of looking at the same issue. Uh, the, for me, the idea of feminist leadership was very new. And by the time I... I'm finishing now, I have completely changed my mind about it. I keep learning new things about it and how it's applicable because one thing to know about things like feminist leadership in free and then actually see it happening during a crisis like COVID-19. So it's been very fulfilling to do that and to also get um, new networks in the peace, security and development space has been very interesting. And I know moving forward, those um networks are to come in hand in terms of collaboration on papers um, or even work opportunities after the fellowship is completely done. Uh, yes, uh, Tabitha, uh, Chimwemwe, Tabitha has spoken about uh, feminist leadership. Well, I mean, in Zambia, uh, we, Africa had the second uh, female head of state uh, on the continent. But has there been much improvement really of the, of the role in women in politics in, in Malawi, sorry, Malawi, not Zambia, in Malawi? Well, uh, I'll try to answer that briefly. Um, we, we had an interesting experience with our first um, female president. Joyce Banda. Yes, Dr. Joyce Banda. And um, it came um, post post our presidency. We've ex we we experienced backlash 
So in the immediate um, in the immediate elections thereafter, we did experience some backlash. Mm. However, there's been um, in some ways um, um, growth and improvement in terms of women's participation in leadership and politics. On the other hand, um, there, there tends to be um, there tends to be a generalization of women's leadership. So one, if one woman does not lead well or there are challenges, then it becomes, you know, it is regarded as everyone's problem. But um, picking up on the, uh, on the idea or the aspect of feminist leadership, feminist leadership goes beyond female leadership. It's really not about women leading, but it's about the type of leadership that, but the type of leadership that seeks to redress um, structural injustices, social injustices, and that can be done by anyone. It is about um, it is about confronting the status quo, which is usually unequal and unjust. It is about um, redressing unequal powers, and those go beyond really just um, you know at national level. We have to deal with this at regional level, and that becomes very clear. For example, when you start looking at the geopolitics of the world. Yeah, well, indeed, that's a good point about feminine leadership, because when uh, President Banda uh, left power. She did complain that she never got the support of the uh, male hierarchy in politics or civil servants. The, the midlife difficult for her. I mean, uh, has that improved? Has that changed? She did complain about the non-cooperation she had from men in politics and uh, those who were in the civil service. Have, ch have, have things changed? Um. Patriarchy is a very um, pervasive system and structure in itself. Um, I think the, the challenges that she faced, of course, a good aspect of it was patriarchy. And that was, you know, that was both played out by men themselves and women themselves, because we cannot run away from the fact that women do internalize patriarchy itself and, um, and can reinforce um, that inequality. But I think some of the challenges were the fact that um, she took up the presidency following the sudden uh, demise or death of, um, of Professor Bingwa Mutariga, and therefore she was just completing a term. And there had been, um, there had been um, challenges within the party. She had been sidelined for about um, two, three years prior to that. And so she was, she was dealing with a situation where um, she was not part of the ruling party, although they had power and they had the majority in parliament. She yes. was able to establish a party of her own, but it was not a party that had been elected into government. And so there were all those challenges also. At, um, whether things have improved, like I said before, it's in, in some ways things have gotten better and some ways they have not. So... For example, with the current um, current government in power, we recently had um, um, appointments in two boards. Um, you know, the representation by you know the number of women elected into these boards was pretty much negligible. Um, on the other hand, presentation or representation in the cabinet was kind of fair, but they were given soft ministries or um, deputy positions. What, what, How? However, what are some ministries? <laughs> well, you could say that 
I cannot give direct examples right now. I have to look at um, the allocations that we're done to be able to clarify on that. I'm so what I'm I mean by soft ministries is, for example, the woman is very capable of doing one ministry. Somebody that is male that is not qualified to do the ministry is given a ministry that is that is that is challenging in itself. And therefore, you wonder whether things are being done by merit. Having said that, um, you know, following obvious following um, protests and even just petitions from um, various people, we have seen that appointment in two other spaces has, you know, has been representative. So, for example, we recently had judges that have been appointed and there was a 50, there was a, what you could say, 50-50, almost a 50-50 representation there. Uh, yes, Margaret, this is more or less similar to what's going on in South Sudan, isn't it? The, the role of women is very, very secondary in, in, in nation building, isn't it? Yes, um, actually, my research kind of reflects on that when looking at South Sudanese women participating in peace processes and how, how they influence the peace process. Um, currently, however, we have women in very high positions. Um, one of the vice presidents is a woman. Um, the minister of defense is also a woman, which is, which some people can say is, you know, pe people might see that as progress. However, um, the women in these positions have also often been criticized because they are in those positions based on their relationships with some people, with the military elite, for example. Um, so it's a bit problematic. We are still trying to find a way where women can meaningfully participate and participate because, like Chimome said, because of merit, because they are capable of doing the job and not just because you are someone's wife or cousin or have some sort of relationship tie with the powerful men in the government. Yes, uh, Ikran, you've also worked with women in Somalia. What is the position there? Because I mean, Somalia is still uh, unsafe. I mean, what's the role? I mean, how, how, how do women cope in that environment in, in Somalia? Uh, I think things are better now in Somalia since the the two-third quarter system where there's more women representatives in the parliament now. And um, you can see that the, the women's voices are heard more in the parliament while uh, before they were um, they used to be in the civil society organizations and um, gives their um, um, their opinions and decisions, but now they have more say at the parliamentary level. And so... Um, um, as much as um, uh, issues of, uh, for example, rape is really um, going at a high speed in Somalia and there's a lot of violations happening right now. And uh, we have more women parliamentarians who are coming together and they're trying to pull in their, um, um, their, their initiatives to um, be able to reduce um, the rape cases at the moment and I, as much as there's no like um, the, we don't have like a lot of women uh, uh, parliamentarians in the in parliament, but it's much better than the previous government that we had. Uh, yeah, Tabitha, you've been working on countering violent extremism. 
And this is a serious problem, not just for the region, uh, East Africa, but also uh, the continent itself, the Sahel, uh, Nigeria, and what have you. So uh, how do you counter violent extremism at the moment in Africa? Because it seems that uh, all the, uh, the talk about violent extremism is just about Europe. Well, there are more people being killed by violent extremists in Africa than in Europe. So how do you see the whole thing being played out? Tabita. Um, thank, thank you for the question. In my opinion, I think it depends on the specific context. So if you look at the Horn Africa, the factors that are driving the issue of violent extremism could be slightly different from the Sahel and different from what is happening in the Lake Chad region. So it's very important to understand the specific context so that policymakers and governments are able to get the right um, intervention um, actions, um, intervention to get the right intervention. Um, so, for instance, um, in Kenya, it's been a combination of both and hard power, where you find um, the government is continuing with some military operations, say, in Somalia under AMISOM. Um, and also in the country, you find the government working closely with the county governments to ensure that they implement their county action plans, by where, which often entail working with religious leaders, working with um, people involved in the education system, um, working with mothers and other primary caregivers in communities who have a lot of influence. So for instance, we I was part of a group that was using radio shows to talk to young people about violent extremism using the institution of elders. And this is because the regions that were most affected at the time often have a very strong institution of elders and people, the younger people often listen to the elders. So if you go through... If you want to go to these communities and you use the elders, then you're likely going to get better results, which will would, would be very different than um, from another community, say in central Kenya, where the institution of elders is not um, as highly regarded. So I think governments need to also be willing to change tact even within the same country to address this um, specific context. Um, the issue of using force has over time um, exclusive force, because at, at the end of the day, you still have to use some force. But the issue of relying on it entirely has proven over time to be counterproductive because it's very costly in terms of finances. And most of these military operations are funded by the European Union or other partners um, on the continent that are not um, local. And so it's not sustainable. And the lives that have been lost, both from the military perspective and civilians, is quite high. So there's been talk of starting to talk of dialogue. And even as that happens, again, it should be context specific. Understand the context, know who in the community you need to talk to, know when is the right time to introduce the issue of dialogue and know who to involve in that entire process. Do you want to involve men? Because if you exclude women, then you're losing a very large proportion of the population. So I'd say it depends. The long story uh, can just be summarized by saying it depends on the context and combination of both soft and hard power, because that will be more long-term. But, but, but I'm sure the underlying problems of uh, violent extremism are the same Africa-wide. Um, so what are these problems? Can't government address these problems without using force, without using violence, without us seeing force and violence from both sides, the government and the people? 
Tabitha. The fact, the fact that some of these groups are purely anti-government, purely um, their ideology is um, seeking to change the governance systems means that often governments are not in a position to have dialogue with some of them. And so if you look at a group like Al-Shabaab, for instance, they're not fighting with Kenya. Like the, the idea is to have their own form of governance that they claim is Sharia. But if you look at it in detail, it's not entirely true. They're just using religion to get as many people to support them as possible. So you cannot um, dialogue with a group that is intent on destroying the very foundations of your country. So it becomes a bit difficult, but at the same time, you can't um, use force against everyone who might be sympathetic to that group. There might be young people who are maybe drawn there because they think that groups will provide them with opportunities for employment or with money for access to schooling and stuff. So the government, for instance, in Kenya has been working closely with different community-based organizations to support young people so that they are not as vulnerable, just trying to build the resilience of these communities um, to ensure that when people go to them with this extremist ideology, then young people do not fall for it. But it's, it's difficult to say that we will entirely stop the use of force because if someone, for instance, is, is planning an attack and you have all the evidence that they're planning an attack, you definitely will not for them to carry out the attack and kill innocent civilians before you can intervene. But again, like I said, if we continue this cycle of violence, it becomes, um, we start having people revenging on behalf of others, and then it just becomes an endless cycle. So it's important to know when to combine both. And there's been a lot of cooperation between governments, um, international organizations that are working even with people in the space of academia to understand all these dynamics. So I'm more hopeful than ever before that this is something that the continent is going to deal with effectively. African Radio, stay tuned. Welcome back. My guests today are four women and early career fellows at the African Leadership Center in Nairobi. They're Chimwemu Fabiano from Malawi, Ikran Abdullahi from Kenya, Margaret Luwila from South Sudan, and Tabitha Mwangi from Kenya. Let's talk a bit about politics and democracy, uh, Chimwemwe. Uh, how, what are your views about the, 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 the elections in the US, considering that in Malawi, the results were overturned and we now have a new president? The elections in the US have definitely been a roller coaster. It's been interesting to watch from here, Sean, um, or fresh elections. Um, um, just in, in the month of, was it May or June? It was in June, early June, I believe. Yes. Um, well, I, I think I, it's been a tough five years. And um, the divisions, um, I do not, well, it is, it is good that the majority have, have voted for um, the president-elect, Joe Biden, but you also think about the divisions and maybe drawing from the conversation about violent extremism, I worry for the United States. How are they going to um, reconcile, um, reconcile from the last five years? What will social cohesion look like there and will it happen? 
Um, and I, I, I do think this is important and everyone is, is concerned in one way or the other. It might be from the aspect of politics um, or of democracy itself, considering that America has been seen and posted itself as you know, the land of the free and probably as a, you know, as a model in this aspect. And so if they have these deep underlying, um, you know, fissures or differences that were there and came to the fore with, you know, with the presidency of Trump, how do they move forward? And, um, you know, where, where does one look for, um, for guidance per se? Or, you know, is this going to be the status of countries and nations going forward? Because the divisions are there. Um, you know, on the continent, as you said, but pretty much we're seeing them across the world, you know, nations are kind of cracking up. And so what does that mean for democracy? What does that mean for citizenship or even the idea of nationhood going forward? What does that mean for the ma majority? What is, what is the majority anymore? Because democracy rides on the majority. What is that? when, you know, we also have to be able to consider that the grievances of those that we consider to be the minority tend to be grounded on some, you know, on some truths. Uh, yes, uh, Tabitha, with your experience in uh, studying national, international security and uh, violent extremist groups, how do you see the, the, the election being played out in, in, in the US? Are we going to see violence like we normally see in Africa, because Mr. Trump has a lot of armed groups that have been making a lot of noise. I mean, how, how, how do you see the whole thing ending? Um, it's been very, I don't think interesting is the right word to watch, but it's been, it's not what a lot of us were expecting to see. Um, of course, when Donald Trump was even running for his first term, there were a lot of questions about his likelihood to accept or, you know, concede if he doesn't win. And so when this time um, he lost, um, there's still a lot of questions on what's going to really happen because um, there's been, um, well, we don't know how true it is, but there's been allegations that his team is not willing to start the transition process. And with that, we see um, that could be uh, the beginning of instability in the country. But then at the same time, given the fact that last year, either last year, 2018, the United States had started to list um, white supremacist groups um, as a threat to national security, might also be, you know, hope, it, it might give us hope that we might not go um, you know, into dark entirely. But I think the next few weeks are going to be critical for the United States. Um, and with that comes even other countries, because if you think of a country like Ethiopia and Eritrea and the conflict that's currently happening there, um, the United States has a lot of influence over the Eritrean president. So if it takes, it's probably going to take about 10 weeks for a new um, president to take office. And so, that means that there's going to be sort of a, a gap or, a, you know, there's going to be a gap during which um, this conflict is not really um, dealt with effectively. And I'm not saying that EGAD and other regional organizations on the continent can't do it. But then the fact that the United States might be 
uh, going through these crises of their own has implications even beyond their borders. But at the same time, I think it's a key for the African regional organizations to step in and show leadership during this so that they're able to assert influence even as the United States deals with their own things. I think it's an opportunity for us as a continent to show our own agency and show that we are willing to work together for the future we want. But look, moving forward, hopefully, it's going to always remind us that no country is perfect. United States, as Shimwemo has said, has always been seen as the beacon of democracy. And now we see um, a large group of people who voted for Donald Trump who really cannot be said to be <laughs> the icon of democracy himself or even support of democracy. Maggie, uh, with the... Uh electoral problems we've seen in South Sudan since independence in 2011. Are we going to see that sort of violence in uh, in America? Because of the, the, the signs that there were people arming themselves and that sort of thing. Maggie. Um, yes, thank you for your question. I certainly hope that it does not escalate to that point. However, we also must acknowledge that there was a very big group of people that voted for Trump and Trump has a big supporting. So I do believe that there's going to be some sort of resistance to this new um, democratic government. However, I hope that it is a situation that they can manage and keep under control um, because of course the South Sudanese situation was really, really bad. And we still continue to see community clashes to date. So we really, I really hope that that is not going to be the American reality. Yes, but the, the Trump supporters want, do not want to accept the results and they don't have any, any, any uh, evidence of, of uh, rigging. So that's the main problem, isn't it? Even though 70 million voted for him, he's still lost. So they just have to accept the results. Yes, he did lose. And thankfully, the um, American institutions are well built and well um, instituted in a way that they can, they have been able to prove that every vote was counted and there was indeed no rigging. So we hope that they will, in the end, accept the results. Okay, so... Ikran, uh, you have seen uh, elections in Kenya and in Somalia. What are your views on the, the elections in the U.S.? I think people have spoken and uh, because there's been a lot of division, there's a lot of uh, chaos that's uh, happening. There's a lot of racial issues and um, uh, people who are divided. And uh, I think for the whole world, it was uh, um, a roller coaster safe. Because things were very different and uh, people were really, were not expecting um, to have Donald Trump um, uh, leave office. Uh, but again, I think uh, the Democrats have spoken and uh, let's see how it goes. I'm not sure how um, those groups who are really uh, armed with, uh, um, with what they'll do, but I think I'm hoping for the best. Yeah. Yes, I just wanted to, to, to link this back to Africa. I mean, we have made our comments regarding what we have observed 
But I think what what we what I left out, and it's probably one aspect that um, Tabitha that touched on lightly was the fact that I think what we have also learned from the Trump presidency and the elections, of course, in in themselves, is pretty much that we don't give enough credit to Africa and African countries themselves, exactly. to um, our experiences, but also our expertise. So, for example, in Malawi, we had elections without. Um, without external observers. And there were the fresh elections were funded entirely by um, you know, um, you know, by government revenue itself. So we you could say we held free not we could you could say we actually um, have had the most fair and free elections in the country because it was not, you know, money lobbied from anywhere. Mm-hmm. It was and they were observed by the people themselves and including watching when the, you know, looking out for when the planes that were bringing in the ballots were coming in, walking with the ballot boxes to, away from um, the the voting site to where they ought, they they were to be counted and so, and so there's something to be learned from that. I think there's something to be learned from um, Kenya itself in terms of the handshake. I know the handshake has always been a contentious one. It was probably performative, you know, but it counted for something. It quelled the you know, the underlying bubbles of the tension itself. And of course, they are rising again because there'll be elections. Um, there'll, you, Kenya will soon be going into elections, but it counts for something. So those are things that we, I think we undermine. And we've kind of been given a checklist of what does democracy look like? What do free and, fair, you know, what do you need to do to be able to have good elections? Yes. And who needs to endorse that your elections have been done the right way? But there's so much that we have done right as well on the continent that we should be picking out from, learning and actually sharing with others. And I think that's where Tabitha's um, uh, point of, you know, this is the time that we can provide leadership, you know, comes, yeah. um, that's where it comes in and we actually have practical examples of what we can provide. And, and, and indeed, Tabitha, in, uh, in Africa, it's not the president who's in power who's complaining about what's been rigged. It's always his opponents. So why, why is this happening in America? President Trump is in power and he's complaining that the, uh, his opponent has rigged the election. Uh, how do you see this? That's, that's never been the case in Africa. It's always the opposition that complains. Um, often it's been the opposition that complains because it's very difficult to um, have the incumbent lose. <laughs> Um, I think it's often more difficult for the opposition, even when they have a lot of support to get into office. But I think with Donald Trump, um, his presidency exposed a lot of issues that even people who had previously supported his party realized that, you know, the ideals that he stands for are just too much and they moved from supporting him to now supporting um, the president-elect. And I think it's a reminder for us, even on the continent, that values are the most important thing when thinking of who we want to lead us. Um, and I think in Africa, we've improved over time because um, the issues of um, post-election violence is slowly coming to, you know, sort of reducing as com- um, compared to what it was like in the past. Yeah. But I think we still have a lot that we have to learn. And at the same time that we can teach other places that, you know, after an election happens, it's very important to bridge the gap between the different communities to ensure that people are now um, acting the legitimacy of the person that gets the majority vote and ensuring that even those who, the few minorities or the minority groups that did not support him 
are not left out of, you know, social benefits and access to employment and all these other things that governments are supposed to provide. So it's, 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 prevent, it's presenting a very um, interesting way to end this year that has been quite unpredictable. Yes, Chimwemwe, uh, uh, what does Africa have to learn from uh, the elections uh, in June where uh, the president lost and you now have a new president, Lazaro Chakwera? And initially, the, case, the, the, the results were thrown out of court. So what lessons can Africa learn from what went on in Zambia? In, in Malawi, I keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, I, I think that um, the first lesson is that power lies with the people. Uh, and we, of course, we are seeing that not just in Malawi, but, you know, um, the coup in, in Mali, um, yeah. The answers protest in Nigeria is a reminder that the power lies with the people. And that's something that we've been learning at the LC with regards to, you know, what, you know, in terms of being able to analyze power in, um, in leadership spaces. Yeah. Um, you know, power is given to a leader, right? A leader is allowed to be a leader. Uh, and there is no leadership if you don't have, um, you know, followers or people that allow you to lead them. So that's, num that's the number one thing. Um, the second thing is definitely about, is, is that we, as for the long, the issue about dependency. Um, for the longest time, we, we've always, and we continue to look for, you know, for funding, for help to do anything, whether it's development work or whether it's elections themselves, right? And yeah. there's a long history in Africa of, um, of the of the of the West having their own, you know, um, people in mind that people in mind that they would like to, you know, run countries for their own selfish reasons. Um, we we saw that especially in the Cold War, but that has, you know, th that tendency has remained now, though it is well, it is well built. Um, you know, one interesting space that that is happening currently, for example, right? Of that is where that is happening currently, for example, is in the DRC, but it is well built, right? And of course, in some Af in some states in um, um, in some states in West Africa, for example. So one thing, the other thing that we've learned from this is that you know our countries are capable of funding their own elections. They're capable of observing their own elections. They're capable of running a free and fair elections as long as you allow the judiciary or rather the rule of law to run as it is. Um, if the rule of law is upheld and um, there is um, impartiality on the part of the judiciary and of course other arms of government, that would include the army itself, the law enforcement itself, um, you, you are able to run a country in a free and fair way where everyone feels that the process has gone as it should. Interesting um, fact is that we had the experience of, you know, what America has is experiencing right now with Trump, whereby the, the, you know, the the person in power, the presidency, claims that there's been rigging because that happened here with Professor Peter Muntarika. They they did claim yes. that um, there was rigging. In fact, the very statement that Trump's made that some of their observers have gone missing, that statement was made here as well. And when questions were asked about who are these observers, can we have their names so we can go look for them? We don't want people missing. Those names ne did not come up. So, yes. um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, there is the issue of dependence that we would be able to 
to run free and fair elections if we put our mind to it. But then in all that, if, for example, the leadership that we need is not happening, there is, there is a change that um, you know, the citizenry can put in effect and see through. There is need, of course, for perseverance. Um, uh, and, and being able to, to critique yourselves. So one thing we've seen, for example, with the current government is that um, they are in majority and within, within the supporters, people will either say this is good or when things do not go well, they'll say this is not good and we do not want to see this going forward. And they'll go out in the street immediately without waiting for that thing to become institutionalized. There are some challenges, but I, I think the core thing is about uh, people power or the power lies with the people. Yeah, uh, President Chakwera was head of the Assemblies of God for, 20, for 24 years. So I mean, would you see any difference between him and the politicians you've had in uh, Malawi over the years, coming from a, a religious background? <sighs> I think it's too early to say. Um, on one hand. On the other, I mean, yes, we can see the differences. We see, we see uh, certain aspects of the church being more outspoken. So the church has always been a, um, an active um, stakeholder in politics here, yes. but we, there are certain quarters that are speaking out more than others that is being observed. Um, I think that there are more people that have a role in the church. So, you know, people that are, for example, are ordained, um, are ordained um, as pastors or reverence. We've seen, we are seeing them being, um, we see them in, the, in various roles as well. And of course, then there's also the issue of, for example, recently there was, they were supposed to table the, um, um, the abortion bill and so arguments would come up with regard to how you know this is not of god and and sorts but that has always been there so i think we just need to give it time and i i say this because the president himself has said this is a republic this is a country this is a republican country it has its own rule of law and that is how it should be run and, and that he's not running this country as um you know as the you know as the as the pastor of the country. So yeah. I think let's give it time. It's only been a few months and to see how, how, um, how it plays out. But the trends are there. Uh, I think, you know, concerns are being raised, for example, when you start talking about issues of um, gender equality and other, other, other aspects that tend, to, that tend to be subdued by, um, by the idea of conservatism. Yes. Uh, Ikran, I mean, You've spoken about empowering people, men and, and uh, women, to take part in the political process so that the process is free and fair. But these are the same people who are, will be out in the streets fighting each other while the politicians uh, in New York or London or Paris uh, taking refuge. So how, how, how effective really is this empowerment of uh, the people in terms of their political rights and, and what they should do as voters? Ikran. At times you find that um, people really uh, vote for politicians when they don't know um, um, if they'll be rewarded their political rights. Uh, for example, in African countries, when, they, uh, when the elections are close by, you'd find that politicians 
uh, um, looking out for people to vote for them and handing out some um, either handouts or money or um, <clears throat> incentives. Uh, but again, when they take leadership positions, then you know you won't find that politician who came to your to your city or who came to your village to uh, beg for your votes. And at the end of the day, you'd find that uh, when people try to seek out their political rights, then um, they don't find it because this person that they voted for was just uh, just wanted to get the the political seat. And once he gets it, then he forgets about the people. And uh, most uh, problems happen um, towards the people and not the politicians. Yes, uh, Tabitha, at least you're rather confident that things in Africa will improve in terms of the democratic process and the electoral process. Yes, I, um, because um, we've seen, just as Chimwema has said, um, we've seen a lot of people really questioning how, like the kind of leaders that they are voting for. We've seen people being more aside that, you know, we are not satisfied with the election results and we need this done again. The same thing happened in Kenya when the presidential election was qualified and it was, you know, it was, it had yeah. to be done again. And so I think moving forward, it's, it's, we're not going to see people fighting over elections. What might end up being more prevalent is uh, maybe online interference or misinformation yes. and misleading people before they run up to elections or, you know, using um, things like the cyberspace to influence people softly so that by the time they're going to vote, they've already decided to vote for a specific person who might not really be who they say they are. But I think the issue of us fighting over elections is slowly coming to an end. Um, and it's an opportunity for regional organizations to do more to hold these leaders accountable. For instance, the elections in Tanzania, recently we saw that some of the people that were in the opposition having to flee from Tanzania, that is thing that the East African community should deal with effectively to make sure that it doesn't escalate to a point of some of us being able to live in their countries because it will mean that the region is not as democratic as it should be. Yeah, since, since you yourself are involved in studying cyber security and cyber terrorism. Uh, do you see the cyberspace having a role in future elections in Africa? In the negative Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, earlier this year, Chimwemo and I worked on a paper that was looking at the um, Russian interference on online elections in, okay. in yes. Africa. Mm -hmm. And we, so some of the arguments that we made was that, you know, it's very easy to not think of Russia as a power very interested in Africa, given the fact that after the end of the Cold War, they sort of left the continent, but of time been renewed interest on the continent by different powers. Um, so you can think of Turkey, um, the Arab Emirates, um, yeah. of course, the United States. European Union and all those people. And so Russia has been very good at using the cyberspace to sort of provide information for people that manipulates the way they vote, like they did in the United States in 2016. And so the continent to start working proactively and not just waiting for things to happen, yes. reacting to that, 
So one of the ways that this can happen is ensuring that all the countries that are member states of the African Union um, ratify and actually implement the African Union um, legislation on cyber cybersecurity issues. Um, it's also important to raise awareness so that the common person on the street knows you know, how to verify information when they see it and are not easily misled. It's also very important to have the private sector working closely with governments to ensure that the innovations that the private sector comes up with are supporting government efforts to deal with cyber terrorism and cyber security. So I think this is going to be a new frontier that moving forward will be very active. And if the governments on the continent don't position themselves in the right way, they could easily be overwhelmed because with cyberspace, there's a lot of people that are now connected and we have a lot of mobile penetration on the continent. And so that means a lot of people are vulnerable, but at the same time, a lot of people have an opportunity to get access to information. So insisting that people know how to verify information and learn how to distinguish truth from fiction and make the right decisions is going to be very well, important. That's, that's interesting. That happening. Yes, that's interesting. You, you mentioned Russia's involvement. What about the Chinese? They provide a whole computer systems for offices, for governments, for universities, and all the servers are based in China. That is very, very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, because the, univers I mean, um, the University of Dar es Salaam has a library which was built by the, uh, the, the Chinese, but I'm told that the server is in China. So they'll be, they'll be stealing all African research methods and uh, ideas. My my response to that is if you don't build it, you don't whoever builds your cybersecurity systems or your security your information security systems ultimately owns it. They're able to have access to information that you otherwise would not let them do it. So instead of us relying on outsiders, why don't we yes. empower our own young people? When the continent has a lot of African um, those that are very innovative and able to come up with these systems, they just lack financial support in most cases. So if we can support them to build our own systems, then we will find ourselves being um, covered as far as the issue of cybersecurity is concerned. Because whoever builds it, owns it, they might say, you know, we need to have some backdoors to ensure that we can provide remote services. But at the end of the day, information is power today. If they have information, then they are able to know your every move before you even yes. make it public. And so it's very risky for the continent to not do its own cybersecurity systems. So Chimwemwe, do you agree with that? Yes, I, I, I think Tabitha has covered it very well. So, what, I mean, Chimwemwe, what, what's the way forward for you? Uh, personally, after after the course. So I after I finish the course, I I I I plan to to get back into um and to work. So you know, I I took this time off to an opportunity to definitely learn, but I also took it up because I I wanted time to be able to read and reflect. And I've gotten that. So um, it's, you know, it'll be a time for me to start looking for a job. Mm. Um, yeah, that's what I'll be doing here after. So, you know, come December, I should be looking for a job. And, and Ikran, what, what, what's your next move? Um, I think my next move is uh, to also look for a job also and uh, be able to 
um, and least whatever island at the African Leadership Center in terms of uh, um, leadership and women and uh, human rights. I plan either join ministries or international organizations. Okay. So Chimweme Fabiano from Malawi, Ikran Abdullahi from Kenya, Margaret Lawila from South Sudan, and Tabitha Wangi from Kenya. Thank you very much. Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at ALC Radio numeral number one. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com. <laughs>